Psychomedy is brought to you by ThreadUp, Manchester-based therapy that supports creativity. I'm Rafaela Nunes, the founder of ThreadUp and the counsellor supporting the creative community. Comedians and creatives in general can experience anxiety, depression, low moods, and this in turn can affect their creativity. One-to-one counselling can facilitate a safe space for creatives to explore any difficulties, to gain self-awareness, to develop strategies that work, and ultimately to create choices that are aligned with the natural creative flow. If you're in need of support, then please get in touch. Visit threadup.co.uk to book your counselling sessions at reduced rates when you quote Psychomedy. Psychomedy, I'm Nathan Cassidy, stand-up comedian and Bachelor of Science in Psychology, a subject I've been studying for 25 years, almost as long as I've been trying to make it big in comedy. And a quarter of a century of studying the fascinating way our minds work on and off stage has led me here today, discussing the psychology of stand-up comedy with today's very special guest, the wonderful Dan Antopolsky. Hello, listeners. (laughs) Dan, how are you today? Very well, ebullient. Good, excellent, good word. Thanks, man. For a linguistics student, I believe. Yep, although I have graduated now. <laughs> but you yeah. can describe me as that. We're always a student, aren't always, we? Are we not always in some way a student <laughs> of life? So as normal on Psychomedy, we won't be looking at each other for the duration of the chat. Danny's laying back here on my sofa. Full disclosure, I can see your legs in peripheral vision, <laughs> moving expressively. Indeed. And, or if not revealingly. Where's your mind at at the moment, Dan, in terms of happiness? Yeah, it's pretty good in a very local way. I had a nice couple of days. Um, I've started doing some gigs after not doing so much for a while. Uh. And uh, I'm not sufficiently re-jaded again (laughs) that when I have a nice gig, it doesn't make me feel quite nice for a couple of days. So I had a nice one a couple of days ago, so I'm feeling quite nice. Okay, so is your... Is your mood influenced uh, heavily from day to day in terms of how the gigs are going and the shows? Is well, that... I, I've been doing stand-up on and off for more than 20 years. And mm. uh, in the beginning, it was very much the case. And when I started doing stand-up, I was lucky enough to identify quite quickly that if you did four or five gigs a week instead of one or two, then the law of averages would work in your favour that you even if you were plunged into gloom from a horrible gig you might have another good one and then there wouldn't be too many days between encouraging experiences whereas people who only did it sort of sporadically um, apart from not getting the stage time also weren't setting themselves up to succeed in terms of morale because you know They'd, I imagine, have a kind of resistance to phoning for more gigs, you know, on some subtle level and things like that. The whole thing would tend to uh, create a feedback loop of, of 
being out rather than being in. Mm. So then you go on and then the years pass and you rack up some motorway miles and uh, the gig itself is just part of it rather than being so defining a thing. Mm. I suppose that is the professional condition that your mood isn't so affected either by triumph or disaster and you you reset faster. Mm. But as I say, more recently, I sort of, I've been doing other things and um, so I'm not doing so much stand-up, so that's the case. So I'm a bit bummed by a sticky one and uh, quite cheered by a good one again. And that's nice. Yeah. Like I know what I know what it is from experience, but I'm still having those emotional residues of those experiences and uh, yeah so there we are yeah nice so you say you're doing more right now are you compared to recent times compared to recent times yeah yeah nice well um let's go back to uh 2000 2001 if we may um so three time nominee for the edinburgh comedy award i remember coming to see those shows in 2000 2001 oh, that's nice of you uh, with our mutual friend Rick. Oh yes, Rick. Yes, I remember meeting you with him. Mm. Yeah, nice man. And I uh, loved those shows. Big oh, venue nice. at the Pleasance, I as I remember. Um, very clever, kind of unexpected, quirky things happening. Loved it. You were also in a sketch group at the time with Catherine Tate and Lee Mack. Um, also yep. nominated for best show. Um, do you remember those shows? Uh, I, uh, I remember them quite well. Yes. Mm. I mean, Lee was Lee was the boss. I mean, they were, it was his material mainly. Yeah. And uh, he, those shows sort of formed the body of sketches from his writing catalogue that then became the sketch show, I think it was called, on telly. Yeah. And then that sort of got him established and then his sitcom flowed from that. So that was the beginning of his sort of, yeah, next stage of his career. Yeah. And... Um, uh, yeah, so me and Catherine were kind of goofing around and Lee was telling us off and that was the dynamic <laughs> some of the time. And you won the BBC New Comedian Award in 98, so with the nominations in 2000, 2001, it was a fairly quick success, I guess, um, in terms of stand-up uh, yeah, for you. it was, yeah. Um, in terms of rising to the towards the top of the tree in terms of comedy in the UK, getting those Edinburgh nominations. Um can you remember how that, uh, how that felt when you started to have those relatively big successes so early? Well, it was an initiation into the big boys, you know, club kind of thing. Yeah. So I started doing stand-up in June 97 mm. and then went around doing my open spots around the circuit and watched all the headliners sort of thinking how amazing they were and what must it be like to be able to have 20 minutes of material, let alone longer. Mm. and so forth and then um, so quite quickly to be uh, spoken to as a not quite as a peer but a junior member of the of the big boys you know section mm. was very heady and uh, yeah uh, did that put any kind of immediate pressure on you or you enjoyed well, it it, 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 it was just like normal like there was no door that wouldn't open for me at that time yeah, um, and then they stopped opening, uh, and, th and now I've seen. You know, now I know the sort of 
slightly sad eyes of my elders who were looking at me kindly, a nice kid who was having his ego inflated, but would soon come to, at best, a plateau and at worst a dip, you know, uh, as they'd seen many times before, you know. It's like Neo in the that Matrix sequel when he encounters all the other versions of himself who've been through this moment, you know. And, um, yeah, now I can see those levels of things. But at the time... Yeah, it was just the new, uh, it was just normal. So everything just was flowing in one direction. Yeah. And then I think in 2002 or three, like I didn't get Perrier nominated. I was like, what? Is there some clerical error? You know? <laughs> um, and then had to digest, had to, well, I guess what happens in those situations is even if you, so I was doing what you've described as quirky stand-up. So often it was, I would go on and there would be a confrontational premise with audiences where I'd be going, yeah, I, this is what I'm doing. I'm not talking about my mother-in-law or whatever, not, not that, but you know, whatever. Yeah. And, uh, and so there's already a sort of charge to this situation where uh, you're going to have to either heckle me off or move your centre of expectation of what the formal characteristics of stand-up paragraphs are to meet me. Um, and I was, I had become very calibrated to standing my ground in audience, with audiences that were initially resistant to that and trying to win them over. Mm. Then everything went great for ages, or what seemed like ages at the time. And I think what happens is when you get a lot of validation is if you're not, if you don't have... <laughs> you'd have to have a much stronger character than I did not to outsource your locus of validation, to be jargony, to other people, because it's easier, you're lazy. And then if they withdraw that, then you're sort of left without your own internal fuel source for morale. So it's a real bummer, yeah. So that oh. did happen. And I've seen it happen to other people. And then you come out the other side, more philosophical, and you meet your... You know, there's luck, there's talent, and there's hard work. Mm. Uh, I don't know if that's an exhaustive list, but those things are fluctuating in some sort of balance if you want to do things. Mm. Um, so yeah. you say that that happened in 2002. Was that the presence? The presence, yeah, 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 yeah. So that would be a point where, yeah. So did you notice that from the get-go of that Edinburgh Fringe or before? that? It... No, no, I expected to continue to be borne aloft on a cloud of praise, yeah. <laughs> so was that, yeah. A, was, that a, was that a genuine surprise then when you were nominated? Um, yeah, I suppose so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, the statistics predicted that I was going to keep winning. I kept <laughs> winning, you know. <laughs> yeah. Or getting nominations and things, yeah. yeah. So I'm just offering this up. Uh, you know, in all humility, because this is a common experience in all walks of life. Things mm. go well, and then you just, well, you make an assumption. You just make a, an assumption based on the data that they'll continue to go well. <laughs> and they don't They don't always. But that's interesting. When it, is, it is the case, isn't it? When things are going well, you do expect them, even though you know from other people it doesn't last forever, that no. when you're in the middle of it, sometimes you do think it's going to just keep going. Why wouldn't I keep getting nominated every year, even yeah, though yeah. you look at the nominations? No one gets yeah, nominated. Yeah, it's just Pavlov. You go to Edinburgh, you get a nomination. Yeah, you just start <laughs> salivating at the appropriate moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Okay. So can we go briefly before 2000, your childhood? How was, how was that? You were born in Israel, is that right? I was born in Israel. Just, yeah. uh, I don't remember it. I was two when we came back to England. Yeah. And how about being funny? Did you grow up looking for the funny every day? Yeah, or? sure. I mean, we're a, we're a joking family. don't know how funny we are, but we're, mm. th- th- there's, there's a cultural habit of trying to be playful with ideas and with language uh, to amuse yourself and others. So that is everyday conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So cultural, so not just... I mean, it's kind of competitive. It can be, or not just not competitive necessarily with other people, but it can be a hunting instinct, you know, to try and find a funny thing. Mm. It's, it's prey yeah. in your mind. You want to, uh, l- you know, get your teeth into the jugular of an idea and it spouts not blood but, but laughter. So it's quite a primal thing, I think, to stalk and leap upon <laughs> a funny moment. Nice, yeah. You, you'll tell me, but I don't know. No, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up the, similarly looking for, looking for funny. And I, 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 it's just interesting you saying cultural and, you know, rather than I think with me it was purely love, I think. I felt more loved when I was being funny and when people were laughing. And I, I remember particular moments with my family where my mom would laugh at me and I'd feel loved by the laughter. We're getting to the end of the wearisome questioning of whether women do, you know, want to do comedy stand-up as much as men because they clearly do mm. and they now are. And they've obviously been prevented by internalised blocks and much more external blocks. And... Uh, so it's no longer, I don't know, I've heard people being boring about this kind of hunting instinct I describe as being a kind of male thing. Mm. Silly people, you know. Mm. But I feel like we're all, we all have appetites. You know, there's, it's just desire, it's just basic desire. Yeah. You know, but the, the, the moment of laughter is a quick moment. So I, that's why I talk about this leaping on, you know, and the idea of it being prey. Yeah. It's a sort of, um, you know, it feels like a little kill, <laughs> you know. I, and I say that because when you miss, when, you, when it's not funny, you, you, something has escaped you, you know, you, you missed, I yeah. think. And I'm talking just in terms of jokes. You know, there, there are, there's other kinds of laughter which stand-ups that get to know initially after they have what I call the ballistics model of just chucking material at an audience trying to score hits, you know, and someone was having misses. Yeah. And that's that level I'm talking about. But then there's also giggles and community and other feelings that arise that also induce laughter. And then they get to be much more interesting. And that's totally different from this kind of hunting thing. Yeah. I was reading a independent article you wrote oh, yeah. this year mm-hmm. um, about your, well, it was... Uh, principally about your holiday in Corfu this summer. And if I may, I'm going to read a bit here because I thought it was such a great article. Um, It says this. We've been here five days and already I'm counting down the hours until we return home. Why can't I be happy where I am, which is better by any objective measure than where I was before? I was really enjoying looking forward to the experiences I'm having right now. All I can think is that it is the loss of that anticipation that I'm mourning so perversely. You then say, I've done 15 Edinburgh festivals over the years, and I've often enjoyed anticipating it more than the festival month itself. 
So I can certainly identify with that. The build-up to anything is often more exciting than the, than the event itself. Is that how you feel with Edinburgh and with other things you do? Um, yeah, I dare say. Mm. So someone gave me a nice phrase, sweet anxiety, mm. which is this sort of condition of being worried and stuff. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but you know, the, stake, the stakes aren't terribly high. And, yeah, and, and you, you, get, you get to be cosy within that stress, modicum of stress. Yeah. You know, it's not stress from war. <laughs> it's stress from, you know, audience reviews and things like that, you know, so mm. it doesn't really matter. But emotionally, um, the the state of desire makes you feel alive more than the state of satiation, <laughs> um, I think. I have this sort of uh, hierarchy where Edinburgh's like the this official manifestation of the, this, this material. Yeah. And um, what's more boring than officialdom? I don't know. Like the, the idea, you know, the, 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 the sense of progress of, of uh, getting a routine like, a, like an organism to, to stand up, you know, to, to become competent, you know, is a, is a great satisfaction. Change, positive change. Whereas yeah. once it's finished... You know, you go up to Edinburgh and you do it sort of a few times. And within the first few shows, you'll have a, a show that makes you feel like you're really connected with with whatever it's supposed to be. It's finally, it's the thing. And then it's, and then it's repeat, you know, for a month. Yeah. So the, the returns diminish in that kind of euphoria mm. of having something that was nothing. It was nothing at all. Didn't exist a year ago. It was just a blank piece of paper. And now it exists in a full and rich way, hopefully. Yeah. Um, and then uh, you can't keep improving it, yeah. yeah. So yeah. So when the run's going incredibly or just well or incredibly well, yeah, you, is, you, there, is there a point where you just well, you can have experiences you never predicted when before you did stand up, which is feeling reluctant, bored, and jaded before you've got a sold out audience all <laughs> excited for you to come on stage, and you're standing in the wings going, ah, oh, screw this, you know. Yeah, I can't wait to to uh, get out of here and see my mate or or go to sleep or, <laughs> yeah. or whatever it is, you know. And uh, is there also kind of uh, the even the most pessimistic of us imagine a kind of best case scenario where we don't even know what that is, but when we're preparing something, we just think, I don't know, without even thinking, well, this could uh, anything specific. We just think, oh, this could be the start of something amazing, and then mm-hmm. when we get to doing it, it's like, well, obviously. This is as, as amazing as it gets. This is finite, yes, that's <laughs> right, yeah. No more dreams. <laughs> yeah. no, I think a full right. house is, that's it. That's it, yeah, that's it. And um, No, but I, I mean, th- th- there's a story about Robin Williams backstage at the comedy store, belly aching about how he was passed over for the Oscars or something. This, mm. is, a, this is a popular circuit story, illustrating that wherever you are, if you're not moving upwards... <laughs> Even if you're not moving downwards, you're just maintaining, you're unhappy. <laughs> so humans are made happy by positive direction rather than positive condition, you know. Yeah, there's a lovely bit of writing in that independent article as, as well about interacting with a recorded voice of yourself in that 2000 show, oh, yeah. which I thought was lovely. And over the course of the month, you noted how the two voices started to vary as the live voice became more jaded. And the, yeah, uh, they, they, they grew a real difference. Yes, <laughs> yes. that was funny. I was slightly changed by my experiences. Yeah, and I love that you said you were, became genuinely jealous of the recorded guy. Yes, that was true. For getting more laughs. Yes, that was true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, 
Uh, and you said maybe you'll get that recording out again and interact with it, which I think will be kind of a nice Yeah, if, if I can find it, I have it on, on a cassette somewhere. Yeah. yeah, I have to migrate it to digital media. I think that'll be kind of nice exercise, like looking back at a diary, but having a more... Yeah, well, you'll uh, be able to hear, I mean, in my human voice, you know, that I'm a much older person now with, yeah. with the kids and stuff, and that'll be interesting. Yeah. Maybe I could rewrite the dialogue so that my live bits, I don't know, created new meanings from the cassette's responses, <laughs> something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, a hard question maybe, but if that voice could carry on talking to you from 2000 to 2001, what, uh, what do you think he'd say I'd, to you 20 years on? I don't know what he'd say to me, but I'd be quite impatient with him, I think. Um, I mean, uh, they're our tribal enemies now, aren't they? They're young. <laughs> they're annoying <laughs> ignorant and optimistic and <laughs> arrogant yeah okay um, do you ever watch the old clips of yourself ever listen to any clips of you as a, a younger person you're still young Dan you're uh, still young thank you I uh, say that because I'm the same age as you uh, uh, I'm uh, do I uh, no I don't really I, 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 I don't know how you are with your previous work but generally I um I don't look back at it, and I find it faintly repulsive, like a poo. It's to flush rather than, you know, <laughs> yeah, dwell on. Well, on that note, we're going to play in a clip <laughs> right on of you from fairly recent. Um, so uh, you've taken, uh, as you say, a few few breaks from stand up since two thousand, doing various other things. And here's a clip of you talking, uh, talking about having a break from stand-up and giving us a few clues as to the reasons for that okay. break. I was away from comedy for a couple of years. I had a couple of kids, that's what I'm doing. And uh, they're very nice, they're lovely. Very nice. Well, one of them. Um, <laughs> it's a change of life, obviously, you know, and for them as well. You know, it's, it's 100% from no life to a life. It's quite a big change. As for dads, it's more the other way around. It's weird. Um, <laughs> I can't really explain to people who don't have kids what a kid is like. Uh, you just have to sort of give them metaphor, you know, something, a comparison. And raising a kid is like helping a drunk friend sober up. <laughs> Come on, try and walk. There you go. Up you go. Hey, that's it. Doing well. Um, comedians often get uh, confronted with the stereotype people have of us that uh, we're, we're always on. You've heard this phrase. We wake up in the morning, joke, joke, jokety joke, step on stage, jokety joke, 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 step off stage, joke, 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 off into the night. And of course, that's a ridiculous cliche. The truth is, we're crying. But I find myself. Well, that's an, an inspiring end. But I find myself. <laughs> yeah. Wonder what you're going to say the there. Fortuitous edit point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, have you taken uh, a few breaks from stand-up? Kind of definite breaks, or do they just come? Yeah. Well, when I had kids, I sort of was reeling from, you know, insomnia and confusion. Yeah. So that was a. Was this around 2005? 2004, yeah. my oh, yeah. first daughter was born, and yeah. my second, a couple of years later. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just couldn't do it anymore. I just could not. not I, I was just exuding reluctance <laughs> on stage, and uh, it just wasn't going well. I had to just sort of uh, cauterize it before I did myself lasting professional damage. Yeah. Um, and uh, then I went back, I think, uh, in 2008 and did uh, about... Yeah, another six or seven years of, for example, Edinburgh shows and touring and so on. Yeah. And then uh, I, my mum was 
ill, ex sort of not very extendedly, but for a few months, and then she died, and then there was uh, had to deal with all that. So, so I wasn't much in the mood to go and tell jokes, huh. and yeah. that was um, in twenty fifteen. And can you can you take a break quite easily from stand up? Um, how does it affect your mind in terms of missing it? Uh, well, I'm I. I mean, I want to have my way with stand-up. I don't want to be driving to um, the north on a rainy Tuesday afternoon anymore. I've done that, and I, it's just I can't do that anymore. I'm just not not the right age to do it. Yeah. And even if I'm willing, and even if the economics worked out, which they don't, uh, I can't do a good show after a four and a half hour drive. So I've yeah. got to. I'm still working out what my relationship is with it. And so I've got this other kind of practical thing, which is an in income stream, boringly. Uh. But um, it might just be like a hobby I really enjoy. And then if something takes off, then it takes off and it doesn't, then I'm still in a self-respecting relationship with it, which is that I enjoy doing it, you know, and I uh. enjoy the conditions of doing it. Yeah. But if you have a if you have an extended time off, I mean, if I have a few days off, I start to miss it. Do you? They're not. Oh, do you? Not like a drug to you. Well, uh, no, not so much anymore. Mm. I mean, you, you've done it a long time, but mm. I feel like I've done it and done it and done it. You know, I've done the, I've done so many pubs and theatres and art centres and, you know, all of these types of things, and, um, I, I mean, I got quite intolerant, at a certain point, where, I just wouldn't. I'd feel like, okay, you know, I was touring my own Edinburgh shows and I'd feel like, well, you've given up your evening and you've given me a tenner or whatever, but I'm giving my whole life to this. <laughs> so I don't really feel like you're dancing monkey for the evening, you know. And mm. as a premise, uh, it's not very healthy in, in a way because it means that if you if you just had a grumpy makingly long drive and you're in a shitty mood then you can't quite remember that actually these are nice people who want to have a nice time and they want it to go well and they want to like you and everything is sort of a is blowing in the in the right direction if you only don't be self-centered about it you know uh. so I, I wasn't in a good place with it and um, there's there's no point doing this wonderful playful activity this job you know job that's like we all chose as an alternative to a more you know wage slavey job whatever we imagined was uh. was the alternative and managed to carve out a kind of crappy mindset for yourself you know yeah. so i don't know i mean when i'm in it, it i'm sort of a bit more delicate with myself in the not in this arrogant way arrogant isn't quite the right word just exhausted as well but uh, uh it's got to work, you know, it can't just be, that's why I've done this other building thing, because I can't resent it for the dependence I have on it, because that makes me, yeah, yeah, just not, not in a playful thing. And my comedy has always been playful, you know, it requires a certain lightness from me, and hopefully that I'll infect the audience with that spirit of play. Yeah. I'd imagine it's quite rare, or certainly talking to other comedians and my own experiences, that it's rare for a comedian who's been going as long as you to not feel compelled to do it and to not miss it as much as you say. You don't really miss it when you're not doing it. Do you see that as quite quite a rare thing? Uh, 
I don't know. Any particular... I don't know. I mean, it, de- it depends, like, what do you enjoy about a good gig, Nathan? Um, What's a good gig for you? This isn't a very challenging or loaded question. I just mean, what, what, what's, what's the pleasure you take away yeah, from it? Yeah, it's when I do exactly the material I want to do and they appreciate it. So I don't do what I feel I have to do sometimes for that particular crowd. I do exactly what I want to do. Yeah. And as you say, you get that full appreciation and you don't notice that one person or those pockets of people who really aren't enjoying it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so that's the feeling that's addictive. It's that feeling of creating something that you really want to create, the ultimate thing that you can create and people enjoying it. Yeah. 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 It's what fires you and people connecting with that. And then that can be topped off with maybe one or two comments from comedians. I talked to Anavab about this, Anavab Powell, and he said, he hasn't enjoyed a single show he's done. He's done over thousands, thousands of shows. Mm-hmm. He hasn't enjoyed any of the shows he's done, but what he's enjoyed is connecting those bits of material or maybe another comic saying that was... So I did a gig last night and it was great, but then another comic who I really respect said that bit is brilliant and probably that bit is the bit that it's I probably... The, the warm coal in your heart yeah, sort of thing. it was yeah. all nice, but yeah. yeah. So yeah, little pockets of... How about you? Um... Yeah, I mean, all of those things. But I think... Um, so that's what I mean. That's what I, that's what I, I miss when I'm not doing when it. When you're I'm not like, doing it. How do I replace that? I mean, obviously, I've got kids and mm. I've got love in my life and, you know, um, whatever. But it's, that's hard to replace, isn't it? Um, I guess so. I mean, I, I, I think maybe I've been more dissatisfied <laughs> than, than you, perhaps. At stand up, I mean, I, I, I found, I found, I, as I say, I'd kind of painted myself into a corner at a certain point, mm. where, where it wasn't just the degree of, um, feeling success or connection or something with the audience, but if the, like, they, if I felt like, certainly as you describe, that if I'd capitulated to pragmatic considerations and done whatever crowd pleasing bits to make the gig go well. Mm. For the sake of future gigs, i.e., getting rebooked or you know a, mm. the career uh, criteria rather than the gig criteria. Um, but also, like I remember having gigs where everyone really liked it and coming away feeling completely hollow, um, and just not moved by that experience at all, and just politely accepting all the handshakes afterwards and all of that stuff and just wanting to get away. Um, And I think if you've got to that point, you should take a break (laughs) because you've had too much of a good thing. And it's so, it's so, it's such a, like you, Whitney Houston type people who reach the pinnacle of their profession and realize that it's still not happy making or nourishing and then top themselves or whatever. You know, like you, you, it isn't, these external things can only yeah, I don't know, this is kind of bleak, isn't it? No, but, but I mean, I, no, you know, I mean, you, it's, it's, uh, this is all sort of wrapped up in what we were saying earlier, that the desire is the pleasure. Mm, and the what, satisfaction is not really very pleasurable. It's momentarily pleasurable, and then it's just a massive bummer because it means the desire is now no longer there. Mm, and that's where you realise the enjoyment was. But when you were feeling hollow with those, whatever, sold-out shows, and it's 
can you put any reasons on that in terms of were you looking for a, a bigger thing? I'm just possibly looking at your early success. You know, again, remembering back to those 2000s, I, I may be remembering a yeah. bigger venue than it was, but it seemed like a huge venue to me as someone just starting out in stand-up at the Pleasance and everyone was loving right. it and you were being nominated. Is there something about that early success and maybe that... Well, there, I mean, remember, this is quite. We, this is our little provincial world of the Edinburgh Festival. You know, it's not success on any kind of well, large, that's what I mean, larger the, scale. The anticipation the, then of the trajectory of your career, then in terms of yeah, yeah, feeling anointed and special and all of that stuff. Mm. I mean, you know, with stand up, you're special because you're standing on the stage and everyone's listening to you. Mm. And uh, when your career goes well, you're special because you're being raised above your fellows. Mm. And you know, th those things are all completely delusional, <laughs> you know, there is no specialness, you know, so if that's what your, what your sense of self is coming from, you're on quite dangerous ground because it can easily be taken away by the vicissitudes of life. Mm. And then what, what else is there? You know, I can have really much more nourishing experiences in small rooms these days where I feel like you're looking people in the eye and there's something on a human level that you're exchanging. Yeah. And that it's like, it's not, uh, there's nothing glossy about it, you know, that's to do with, if you stand on the stage with a big audience, you've got this status that's to, that's to do, that's a function of the number of people in the room. Mm. Um, and that that's, that's really nothing to do with, you know, the performance. Mm. And it gets to be almost an encumbrance, although it's ostensibly what comedians are seeking professionally. Yeah. But you think that's possibly where the feelings of hollow come from, maybe if you're at a big venue and you can't see people and compared to... Well, uh, I think I should just have a little fact check here about mm. quite how successful I was. You know, like <laughs> I would sell out in Edinburgh, but when I'd go out on tour... You know, I didn't have a tele profile or anything, so often yeah. uh, I wasn't getting big numbers and stuff. So sure, that was also the case. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I think uh, if it doesn't feel, yeah. Have you I mean, ever stand up should should be an act of communication? You know, but where, and if it doesn't if it doesn't feel like you've communicated with people, for example, if you've recited your material in its uh, in its fossilized rhythms. Mm. And people have laughed, but there's something missing. You know, those mm. are the experiences where you can feel really hollow. You sometimes you're tired and you're preoccupied with something your kids are doing that day or whatever it is mm. on your mind, and you go and you do a gig and you're kind of on the back foot. You find it difficult to be present in the room. Mm. You 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 launch into your material, but you find it difficult to look the audience in the eye because you are ashamed that you're not really there. Mm. You're kind of not lustily performing you know and mm. uh, there's some there's something wrong with it you know even if it, it it seems to go perfectly well yeah you know and uh those not the professional elevations but those kind of experiences become the benchmark experiences against i mean the, the when you do connect you know are the benchmark against which other experiences can fail yeah. So when you started, you thought, oh, well, you, you tell your jokes and people laugh. That is success. But it cannot be success once you've tasted a feeling of having, you know, really performed and it being a set really interactive. Not that they're talking, but that they're, they're laughing and listening and inferring and being mentally on and engaging, you know. Yeah. And th those experiences feel valid 
um, yeah, just in, in a way that other ones don't. And yeah. if you're not having them, then even if uh, you're getting paid and, and stuff, you can feel shitty. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in more recent times, 2017, you did uh, show the return of Dan Antopolsky. Um, so as you say, you, you lost your mother and you were talking about that and, and separation. How, how is doing stand-up comedy about these things, particularly if some of the emotions, as they were, still incredibly raw? Was it uh, cathartic or hard? or? Uh, well, um, I mean, again, I, I think performances were distinguished in my mind where between audiences I felt I connected with and then mm. I would become emotional on stage because I felt like I was sharing something with human beings. Yeah. Um, you know, so there are key lines in the show. They're written, they're written sad. They are sad. You know, they lead to kind of comic ironies and so on. Mm. But it was, a, it was um, there were sort of some minutes on stage where I was speaking without laughter and then, and sometimes it was really moving. We moved each other, you know, like, like we had amused each other, you know. So, and there, and there were nights where I f it felt like a recitation, yeah. Mm. Um, but uh, I'd never tried to do that before to sort of be. Um, people described it as vulnerable, but I didn't feel vulnerable doing it because those those things are universal, you know. It's not. It's not. <laughs> They come to you, you know, mm. so it wasn't a weakness or a, I didn't feel exposed at all. And I was interested in that description uh, of vulnerability, um, where it was just candor. Can mm. I mean, if you're candid on stage, it's actually artifice and the subterfuge of, you know, linguistic misdirection and all, all the bits of the bits of stand up that are vulnerable because <laughs> you're attempting to achieve something by well-meaning deceit, you know, but you're basically, if you fail to land a joke, it's that you've been caught out in an attempted trick. <laughs> um, but if you're being honest on stage, then there's nothing, there's nothing to say about it. It's unimpeachable. Mm. So it felt very, it felt very safe. Yeah. So is that, is that one of the main, ways your stand-up has changed recently in terms of candid and honesty and... Um, yeah, I guess uh, in some ways, I mean, writing those independent articles, just having to come up with a thousand words a week, like you can't write a thousand words of glib, amusing stuff. So uh, like it forced me to commit to an idea and write to a slightly longer arc. And yeah. I think that's fed back into my stand-up somewhat where ideas are kind of connecting rather than words connecting or, you know, Mm. Uh, callbacks for the sake of a bit of structure or, you know, I don't know, this might be grandiose. But, yeah, but that's, uh, a, that's a... I, I feel like there's been a subtle shift yeah. in, uh, in, the, yeah, in my approach. Yeah. And this is, I guess, something that happens as you get older and, you know, obviously things happen in your life and how do you feel about getting older? How do I feel about getting older? Mm. Um, it's funny being in your, I'm now 47 and yeah, I kind of, my hair is starting to grey <laughs> and uh, my children are getting into their teen years. So there's a kind of countdown to them having their own adulthood. And uh, I, I feel, I feel, I don't mind. No, I don't mind. Mm. I, I, I feel kind of maybe moving from old young to young old or something and then that's that's nice 
it never stops. You know, it's an illusion. This idea of of uh, chapters of life that you, you you graduate to. You know, it just it just keeps going on. You're 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 progressively less foolish, hopefully, and then you die. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Good night. Yeah. yeah. But in, in terms of your stand-up, I mean, the uh, as you say, you were called vulnerable in 2017, but I, I read a lot of great reviews for that show. And as you get older, that honesty, um, it can make a, a great stand-up. But then you've talked about not having that burning desire to do that. Do you feel like right now you're in a great place to do great stand-up or do you not even feel like that? Do you not, because you don't have that, um, burning desire to do that. No, no, I do. I think I, I, I think uh, I, I really like the stand-up I'm doing now. Yeah. Um, uh, more than before. Um, a, a family friend said to me, I think I complained to him a few years ago that I, you know, I don't know that stand-up, or certainly in the way it's in the media landscape, it's like a younger person's game or something, or I, I feel like my, my energy had d- diminished or my, my, my zeal. And he, mm. he sort of raised an eyebrow and said, you know, you, do you really think your best work is behind you at your age? That was a, you know, and that sort of sat with me and I thought, oh yeah, that's a great thing. And of course, George Carlin was great. You know, you, there's, stand-up is something where you might not look as nice, but you, you know, you definitely should be able to get funnier and deeper and wiser and, you know, there's always room for growth. So at the end of the day, that is always an enticing idea that you can you can always change and develop what you do as i was saying you know the attraction of it is that you can you can change it and you can you can move in whatever direction you think is positive Mm. you can advance and when that person said and you're alive yeah when that person said that to you was there is is there an agreement you know in terms of your best your best show your best work could definitely be in front of you and i'm from my perspective, it, I think it always is. But from yours? your best, your best is yet to come. Yeah, you feel that way. Yeah. Well, I think you have to feel that way. But do you feel that way? I do now. Um, yeah, I think I do again. I mean, I think, um, for example, if you do a few Edinburghs on the trot, you kind of get into a groove of trying to be good at something. You know, like. So I don't think of my stand-up as particularly kooky these days. Oh. Um, I hope it's interesting or whatever, but um, I don't have this kind of Martian persona on stage where, like, I'm going to fetishize my difference. I am a bit different because we're all a bit different, or I'm embracing that and um, featuring that difference. Neither am I featuring my sameness. I'm just being a person who's an individual and we will have points of sameness and we'll have points of difference yeah. and that is a resonant statement I think and uh, I don't know I, I'm not very interested like I I, I I talked about like disliking my 20 something year old self on the cassette but actually I do like that young fellow because he was very enthusiastic to try out all his ideas all the ideas of building a crazy prop or, you know, having some set piece that lasted for 20 minutes and could have got you into a, a different atmosphere from a bloke with a mic and mm. things like that. And without much 
like I didn't know about theatre or I didn't have kind of principles and concepts to guide it, you know, but I had a lot of energy. <laughs> and uh, I think, um, yeah. But when you're older, you've got the other thing. You've got some experience, you know, and more, more sense, uh, I think, and you're a bit slower moving. And so depth is the thing. And yeah, and connection, I guess typically experiences that unite you with other people like family and you know a bit of life and death and mm. um, there's no you you, I don't know, you just can't keep being being kooky mm. when you're when you're a human being and the 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 fuller experience of being a human being is kind of born in on you yeah i don't know don't know anything <laughs> <laughs> right well as we Draw to a close. Yeah. You um, things that make you feel better. Do you? I, I notice you playing piano on a uh, on a little YouTube clip, and I've oh, read yeah. that you're a good pianist. I'm I mention this because this is something I'm learning at the moment, and is making oh, well. is helping my my psychology. You've a lot. recently started learning the piano. Well, yeah, I did it as a kid. Mm. Um, I gave up at grade one. <laughs> Which is a, Obviously a low level, but uh, yeah, I'm at grade six now. So That's amazing. Inspired by my son, so that is amazing. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank that, you. Yeah, what a great thing to do in in adulthood. Yeah, and it does make me feel um, so much better. And it's like it's like a great gig in a way that when you're in a I don't know about you, but when you're in a great gig, you can't possibly think about. Although you've maybe countered that with saying it sometimes makes you feel hollow. But for me, it's like when you're having a great gig, you can't think about too much um, that's going on in your life. And music does that for me. Um, yeah. What's your relationship with music and how often? Uh, well, I play the piano a lot. Uh, and um, yeah, I, uh, I improvise. So I, play, I played jazz when, yeah, when I was young. Uh. I had a preference for that. And so, yeah, I, I improvise and... Yeah, get my rocks off just um, playing the piano. Yeah. Nice. And do you do that all the time, do you? Um, yeah, I do that a few times a week. I mean, funnily enough, my relationship with piano improvisation is not unlike my relationship with comedy, where I was very attracted to discord and, you know, the jazz, jazzy chords and trying to push my listening into new areas of kind of acclimatizing to more abstract uh, forms of jazz and so on. And now when I play, I'm quite happy to play quite sweet music, even romantic. And uh, if I feel bluesy, I'll stick in a seventh. And <laughs> if I feel jazzy, I'll stick in a thirteenth. And if I don't, I might play some quite, you know, um, quite majory music. And uh, mm. yeah, I, I'd say that is evidence of personal growth. Mm. I think there is a definite relationship with music and comedy and it's only musicians pointing out to me in terms of how it can influence your comedy and sometimes make it better with the the, the natural kind of light and shade, major and minor, as you say, with music and timing and the beauty of music and the emotions and Yeah. Yeah. I found it uh I found it very therapeutic and Well that's great. Yeah. I want to hear some of that in my kitchen downstairs.
Okay. Well, thank you, Dan. As Thanks, I say, um, seeing your seeing your shows is all such a thrill and uh, well, genuinely an inspiration to me. Thank you, um, And it's always a joy and an honour, and I mean that, to share a stage with you and indeed uh, a conversation like this one. So well, thank you. How lovely. Thank you very much. So much very for nice. coming on Psychomedy. So that is our show for today. Join us again next week for more Psychomedy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify UK, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked it, please give us a five-star review. It helps other people to find us, and only psychopaths leave three-star reviews. Psychomedy was written and presented by me, Nathan Cassidy, BSc in Psychology, and produced and edited by Mike Hansen, BA English for Pop People Productions, theme music by Mike as well. So that's Psychomedy. Please subscribe, rate, and listen back on all the great episodes so far. They're listed, and there's video clips and more at psychomedy.co.uk. Follow us on social media at Pop People UK, at Psychomedy Pod, at Nathan Cassidy, and at Dan Antopolsky. Thanks again, Dan. Thank you. Lots of love. See you again next time.